All right, well, let's go to the throne. What a privilege. What a privilege. Father, it's a privilege just to, at any time, <laughs> go to a place where we know that you are an ever-present help in a time of need. I pray, God, for Dwayne and Carver, that, God, you are a God of healing. You know the needs of each and every one in this place. God, all we have to do is speak those names and you know even the very hairs on the top of their head. So you know what they're going through and what they need, God. And we just come before your throne and we ask for your mercy and grace in their lives, God, that you would touch. God, for everyone here tonight, as we open up your word, I pray, God, that you would change us. That we not ever leave after opening your word without being changed just a little closer to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we give ourselves to you tonight. We ask you to forgive us where we have sinned against you. Cleanse us, God. Thank you for the throne where we can ever find mercy. We can ever find cleansing and forgiveness, God. We ask you to teach us your ways tonight and help us to walk in them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You ever think about, uh, well, how many of y'all ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Right? Chronicles of Narnia. You know, he was a good friend of J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and that whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. They were, they were contemporaries. They were good, good friends. And of course, C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. How many of y'all have seen that? Right? Or read it? So, he was a great fiction writer, but he was also one of the greatest theologians and philosophers, Christian philosophers of the 20th century. Great man. Wrote a lot of books. One of the books he wrote was a book called The Promise or, or The Problem of Pain. Anybody ever heard of that? So he wrote a lot, he wrote a lot of, of books that dealt with philosophy. And one of them, and it's probably a great, one of the greatest questions, one of the most difficult questions we can ask is the question that is theological and philosophical, and that is, why do people suffer? Why do we have to suffer and go through the things that we go through? And then we could take it another step further, and we could say that, why does it seem that good people suffer and Evil people just can seem to coast through life and, and it never catches up with them, right? So these are questions that we always ask. So it's kind of the direction we're going in tonight with Psalms 38, but I'm going to kind of like weave into it, all right? And we're going to weave in by starting with a little positive stuff in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. So in your New Testaments, we're going to start with Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And it's a very personal message to these believers in this Greek city. I think you could probably compare Corinth to New Orleans. You know, and that like, let's just just compare what went on in Corinth to what would go on in the French Quarter in New Orleans. A lot the same, okay? So we're going to pick up in verse 5 right there and read to verse 10. Y'all got it? Y'all ready? Here we go. For even 
when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Wow. So Paul is writing a letter to Corinth. This is the second letter that he's written to him. That's why it's called 2 Corinthians. And the first one is called 1 Corinthians. But in the first letter, he really got on him and he said, I, I have a problem with you guys. You guys are suffering sin in the church. And he said, you better deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, I'm coming. And when I get there, I'll deal with it. And you don't want me to deal with it. That, he literally said that. He was like, we are going to deal with sin in the church. It is not going to happen. So he was very, he, he, he drew a line. And he and he's telling them there. It now when I look back at it, and I was really harsh with you guys, but I also rejoice because though it was hard for me to like really draw that line and be firm with you, that correction ended up causing you to move in the direction of repentance, and the sorrow that I caused moved you to a state of change. That's pretty powerful. And Psalms 38 is about the problem of suffering. The problem that philosophers and theologians, men like C.S. Lewis, have dealt with for centuries. Good people suffer and bad people literally get away with murder. And if I told you that I have an answer for suffering, I would be lying because some things just make no sense. You hear some stories and you and you seriously have to look up at God and say, why? Well, the question why can be answered with one three letter word, sin. God doesn't bring suffering, sin brings suffering. And that curse is something that just permeates creation. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. And the curse is broken for the child of God. But we still see suffering and we still live in the midst of a suffering world. So I have some thoughts tonight about suffering. But first, let's look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. And just the last section of there. Look, you remember the scripture for it says, For he, and that's God, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if we think it's just us, or if we think it's just them, think again. Jesus is teaching here, and he says, 
The sun rises on the good and the bad. Rain falls on the good and the bad. It happens both ways. So really it's not for us to, to, to ask why, but to have faith. But I have some thoughts on why. So I'm going to give you some of my thoughts on why, and then we're going to get into Psalms 38. And the first thought that I have is this. Why do people suffer? Why do people suffer? Number one, to know more about God. That may seem a little strange. We suffer to know more about God. But think about this, right? Y'all know the book of Job? So Job was a righteous man. God even said how righteous he was to Satan. He said, have you considered my servant Job? How righteous he is? How, how upright he is? But God still allowed Job to go through a time of testing, a time of suffering, a serious time of testing and suffering. That was a process that was meant that Job might not just stay in one place, but that when he was tested, he would come forth as gold. You know, that's, that's what you do with gold, right? Y'all ever heard that? You take gold, you put it in the fire, and it's purified. All impurities are burned out, and it becomes pure. And so you have a pure gold, and then you try it in a fire again, and you burn out more purities, and it becomes purer. And that is done over and over, and, and gold is tried in a fire. It's placed in a furnace to burn out all of the dross. And that's what God said happened to Job. So look at Job 42 and verse 5. Here's what Job said to God at the end of all his suffering, losing his family, his possessions, a miserable health condition. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. So the suffering that Job went through, he said, I've heard about you, but now I know you. I've seen you. I've seen you in my suffering, God, and I feel that I know you even more. So the first thought that I have about why I suffer is suffering brings us into a closer relationship with our God. The second thing, suffering helps us Stay away from sin. Suffering prevents sin in our lives. Suffering builds humility, and humility helps us to avoid sin. Think about this. Y'all know that Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and he spoke about this, right? He said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, and he said, I, I, I went to God, and I said, God, please remove this thorn from me. And he said, I did it three times. Three times I asked God, remove this thorn in the flesh from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient, right? So what was the thorn? There's a debate about what the thorn is. And why debate it? It doesn't matter. It was a thorn in the flesh. It was something that God used to prevent pride from growing in Paul's heart. Paul was given all kind of knowledge. I mean, he had a relationship with God and, and knew secrets that and, and was brought places in the spirit that are amazing. He received revelation directly from the Lord and God gave him this thorn of suffering to prevent sin in his life because pride is one of the worst of sins, right? It's a great evil. God hates a proud heart. So he said, 
that God gave him this thorn so that he would not be lifted up above measure. So God giving him that thorn in the flesh was a way of preventing this suffering. We, can we agree that a thorn in the flesh is something about suffering? So God gave this to him to prevent sin in his life. And we'll see in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he saw a purpose in the suffering, the thorn in the flesh that God had given him. The third thought that I have about why suffer is that suffering helps to advance the gospel. Now, that might be something we don't like to hear, but the Bible says all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And persecution is definitely a form of suffering, wouldn't you say? To be persecuted is to suffer. And suffering advance in that way advances the gospel. We, we think about Paul and all of the things that he went through. Just look at the times that he suffered loss for the gospel's sake. And so he's writing, there's some of, some of the letters that he wrote, we call them prison epistles, because he wrote these books, these letters to churches while he was in prison. And one such book was, was the letter to the church at Philippi. So in Philippians 1 and 12, look at what Paul said in, in Philippians 1 and 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, I'm in prison now, huh? all right? I'm in prison. What has happened to me? has really served to advance the gospel. So why suffer? We get to know God better. It prevents sin in our lives. And number three, it advances the gospel. That's just a, a few thoughts. But Psalms 38 really deals with one more thought. And the last thought that we're going to look at tonight, and that is, that suffering can be a result of sin. Let that sink in. Suffering can be a result of sin. And when we think of it, really all of mankind is suffering because of sin, right? That is original sin. That is the sin that is passed down from descendant to descendant to descendant. It started with Adam. And the curse in the garden has been passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down from generation to generation to generation. Sin. The problem of suffering is a problem of sin. Mankind is suffering because of sin. When we see suffering throughout the world on a general sense, we could say that the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, is the problem of sin. In fact, we're promised that there is coming a day where there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more pain, there will be no more tears. And that's when the sin problem will be dealt with once and for all. Psalms 38 is a penitential psalm. There's a couple of them, there's not many of them, but it's a penitential psalm. It, it, that means that penitence, what is that, penitence? Penitence, right? It means, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. That's penitence. 
God, I messed up. I've screwed up. I, I, I admit it. I need help. That's penitence, all right? So we see this, uh, this penitential psalm of forgiveness. He's suffering because of sin. When, when we enter this psalm in just a little bit, I want you to know that the psalmist is suffering because of sin in his life. Now I know that I'm forgiven. And if you are a child of God, you are forgiven. And the Bible says, the same psalmist says, that he takes our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west, and he throws them into a sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more. All sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. They're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? But we can still suffer because of sin. Just because they're forgiven does not mean that God will allow sin in His people. God, here's the question, does God ignore sin in a believer? Absolutely not. He's forgiven us. He forgave us, past and present, but that does not mean that He will ignore sin. Let's look at two scriptures real fast. Romans 8 and 1, and then we'll look at Hebrews and compare the two. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to know right now, if you are a child of God, there is no condemnation for you. You are saved, sanctified, born again, and you are going to live in eternity with Jesus Christ because nothing you can do affects that. It's what He has done. He paid it all. He paid the price for your sins. By faith alone, we are saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Nothing I can, no good thing I can bring to make me any more saved. There's nothing, no good thing I can bring to keep me saved. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by the sacrifice that He gave of His own life. He shed His own blood for my salvation. That is the reality. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is placed into His death placed into His burial, and placed into His resurrection. I have put on Christ. I have His righteousness. There is no condemnation. Alright? We got that? That's the gospel. Hebrews says this, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. So there's a contrasting. There is no condemnation, but there is discipline. Y'all got it? There is no condemnation. He's not going to condemn you for your sin, but He will discipline you for your sin. He will discipline. And he, if, if you're not being disciplined for your sin, maybe you need to check your relationship with the Lord. Because He disciplines the one He loves. He chastises everyone who He has received. So that's kind of important, isn't it? So in Psalms 38, the psalmist is saying, Lord, I've sinned. Lord, I'm miserable. Lord, I deserve this. Everything you're bringing upon me, I deserve. So this psalm is called a song of remembrance. A psalm of, or to bring to remembrance. He's talking about bringing 
something to remember. And so maybe I can give you a little illustration of what that means, okay? Let's go to Luke 23. And y'all remember the thief on the cross, right? Two thieves crucified with Jesus, one on each side. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deed. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So you see the remembrance, this psalm of remembrance. He's saying, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm being crucified and it's just. I deserve what I'm getting. But Lord, in the midst of me getting what I deserve, please remember me when you come into your throne. A psalm of remembrance. Just as the thief is doing right here, he's saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be with me in paradise before this day is over. Isn't that a great promise on the cross? Redemption for this man. So, as we break this psalm down in the rest of the time we have, we haven't even looked at it yet, but we're going to look at it right now. We're going to see four things. First, that God does something. Second, that sin does something. Third, that sin does something to the people around us. And four, the sinner must do something. So let's go ahead and break it down in Psalms 38. And we'll begin with verse 1. Psalms 38, beginning in verse 1. Y'all got it? Y'all with me? Y'all sure? Everybody with me? Y'all awake? All right. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. We'll just stop right there. God is shooting arrows. This is the, this is the metaphor that we're seeing. It. God is shooting arrows. Remember our scripture that we looked at in Hebrews, right? Whom the Lord loves, He rebukes and He chastens. He disciplines the person who He loves. God is bringing discipline in this psalm. God is dealing with sin. It's a disciplinary process. And that's what this psalm is all about. We see displeasure among that the Lord is displeased with the conduct, with the actions of this man of God. And he says, Lord, your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down. Your hand has come down on me. Serious. It's serious. So in the light of this, as as we go through this psalm tonight, I think we need to examine ourselves. So God does something. God's hand is on him. God is shooting arrows. And then we see that sin does something to us. When we fall into sin 
as children of God. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But even after we're saved, like everything doesn't, you know, miraculously disappear. We still have to be constantly working and sanctified by the Word of God. The Word of God is working in us and changing us and molding us into the image of Christ. We are new creations at the moment of new birth, but God is sanctifying us. We're going through a process of change, and we're being changed, not of incorruptible seed, but incorruptible seed by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. It's changing us, but sin happens. And if any man says that he's not, that he does not sin, the Bible says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we know that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's a constant work in progress, a constant work of repentance and, and coming to God and saying, God, this needs, this is a problem I need, I, I'm sorry, help me to grow. And so God is changing us we need to examine ourselves. But when we fall into sin, God does something, but sin also does something to us. And so that's the next section that we will look, look at, beginning in verse 3. This is what sin does. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Sin does something to us. Sin does something to us. It affects us physically. It affects us emotionally. It affects us spiritually. It affects us mentally. It steals our joy. It steals our purpose. It steals our focus. It steals the very life from us. And here, the psalmist is saying, there is sickness all over me. My body is sick. My heart is sick. My spirit is sick. My soul is sick. My mind is sick. There's no hope. It's a burden. It's it's. You can see, can't you hear his language like, I am being crushed by sin. Guilt, shame, and physical, physical illness has taken over me. So sin does something to us. It comes as a friend. It says, oh yeah, let's have a little fun. You know you want that. It appeals to our lust. And it entices us. And we walk away from our Lord just for a moment. And before we know it, it has captured us. And it says, 
friend? No, I'm your master. And now you're going to do what I say to do. And it enslaves us. It captivates us. And finally, it destroys us. We think we can control sin. We think we can control it ah, just, a, just a little bit. And before we know it, we have slidden so far from God that we feel like we are crushed and unrescuable. And this is where the psalmist is at. Sin also does something to the people around us, doesn't it? So we go on and we see in Psalms 38 and verse 11, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. What does that mean? I done burnt some bridges and they don't want nothing to do with me. My nearest kin stand afar off. My family wants nothing to do with me. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. So sin does something to the people around us. Sin builds walls between us and the people who love us. It builds walls between us and the people who support us and who believe in us. Between you and people in your life, the people that love you, sin affects them. They stand aloof. They don't want, they, they stand afar. They back away. But it also affects our relationship with other people. It builds bridges to the wrong people. It builds bridges to the ones who want to see us destroyed and who want to be, who want to be in companionship with us, allies in sin. Let's be allies together in sin. Let's come together and let's just do it together. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry and have a good old time. So while we're building walls between the people that should be supporting us, we're burning bridges and building bridges to the wrong crowd. We either have allies to sin or we have allies in righteousness. It's the kind of relationships we can have. That's why the Bible says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. So there's a time to like separate from those who are going to be honestly foes against what the Lord is doing in our life. So you're either going to build allies to sin or you're going to build allies to righteousness. But when you're down, when you're down in the midst of your sin, the psalmist says it right here. David says it right here. When you're down, those very same allies are going to kick you in your gut. They're, they're planning treachery all day long. They don't care about you. They care about themselves and they will kick you when you are down. Y'all see the misery in this psalm? Like this is a psalm. Like whenever, when it was assigned to me, I was like, man, thank you, Matt. It's a psalm of misery. Misery. Abject misery that he's going through. 
And he, he really addresses God in four different ways here. In verse 2, he says, Lord, you hurt me. In verse 9, he says, Lord, you know me. In verse 15, he says, Lord, you hear me. And in verse 21 and 22, he says, Lord, you save me. So we see a progression in the way that he is addressing God. So sin does something to the people around us. I mean, and listen, maybe I'm going to get off topic here, but I'm just going to share the word of God with you, okay? If you don't like it, you don't like it. But we're not going to water down God's word. We're going to take it at face value. All of this sin is manifesting in physical sickness. He is being affected physically. Sin can cause sickness in your life. Doesn't mean that it that doesn't mean that somebody's sick and you can say, "Oh, what kind of sin have you done?" You know Jesus said that straight, right? Okay? So just because just because somebody's sick, somebody's got COVID doesn't mean that they're a rotten sinner. Or, you know, they got, you know, oh, you got the flu, you must have done something bad last week. No, that's not how it works. I'm just telling you that sin in our lives can be manifested in physical sickness. So look at 1 Corinthians 11. We just had the Lord's Supper last Sunday. We ate on Easter Sunday. We, we remembered the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection by sharing the communion cup together. And in those same scriptures that were shared, 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, Where are whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We're not going to cut that out of the Bible, are we, Manny? That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God disciplines sin in our lives to keep us from the condemnation of the world. Isn't he a good father? He loves it. He does it because he loves us. We don't let our kids get away with anything, right? We are going to discipline them. We are going to admonish them. We are going to teach them right and wrong. The Lord loves us. He does the same. James chapter 5 and verse 13. 13? Yeah. These scriptures are used all the time. Like, let's bring somebody up and let's pray for the sick. Let's anoint them with oil. But let's put it all in context. Is there any among you suffering? We're talking about suffering, aren't we? We're talking about the problem of pain. We're talking about the, the problem of suffering in life, in the world. Is any among you suffering? Man, we, there's times when we suffer. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Sing. Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And 
If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So in the same context of praying for the sick and being anointed, anointing the sick for healing, and if, not necessarily, but if he has committed sins that might be tied to that sickness, they shall be forgiven. So we see that this was manifested in the psalmist in physical illness. C.S. Lewis, I want to give you a little, just a little, a little notion of, of what he teaches in the problem of pain. Here's a little quote from C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. He shouts to us in our pain. That's powerful. That's powerful. And then lastly, we see that the sinner must do something. So we see God do something. We see sin doing something. We see sin doing something to the people around us. And then we see the sinner must do something. And that takes us back to where we began. When Paul was speaking to the church at Corinth, he says it is godly sorrow that works repentance. He says, I was hard on you guys. I told y'all, y'all needed to deal with, y'all needed to deal with this sin in the church. And if y'all didn't deal with the sin in the church, that I was going to come there. And he told them, he said, that person needs to be put out the church. It, it was a pretty, it was a sexual sin. It was very flagrant. It was very, uh, it was, it was unhurt. It was, it was nasty. And he said, y'all deal with this sexual sin in the church. And if y'all don't put that person out, he said, I will come and I will deal with it. But then he told them, you know, I was really grieved. It grieved me to have to be that harsh with y'all. But I also know that it brought change. It was godly sorrow that worked repentance in you. And so it is godly sorrow that works repentance. So the problem of suffering and the problem of pain is that God will bring this suffering to save our souls, to bring us back into relationship with Him. Amen? So he's saying it's, it's godly sorrow that works repentance. So we see in verse 15, as, as we read the rest of the psalm, let me read it. I'm going to read it over here. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. So the but, the but always like, there's that preposition that just changes it all. He says, in spite of all of that, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. They, you know, they, people love to mock us when we, when we mess up. We mess up and they mock. And he says, and they boast against me when my foot slips. And he says, I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I confess my iniquity. I confess my iniquity. Wow. I am sorry for my sin. This is, this is a simple prayer of repentance. I'll, this is as pure as it gets. This is as real as it gets. This is as real life as it gets. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty 
And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Even though I sin, I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So there's some self-examination that always has to take place, right? I mean, when we, when we enter into a time of, taking, of, of sharing the Lord's Supper, does it mean like, oh man, you know, uh, I shouldn't have looked at that picture on Facebook for more than 10 seconds. That made it a sin, you know. Uh, I lusted. I, uh, I, I smoked a cigarette. I don't know. Whatever, you know, whatever it might be, you know, I, 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 I just fell. I, I, I just failed you, Lord. Whatever it might be, I said a bad word. I had a bad thought. Self-examination, that doesn't mean that like when we have the Lord's Supper that, you know, you're not qualified. There, also, there always needs to be this time of reflection. Let a man examine himself. So that's a quiet time when we bow our heads and we say, God, I have messed up. There are some things that I've done wrong, Lord. I need the blood of Christ. I need you to forgive me. I, I'm sorry for what I have done. And He comes and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we are whole. We are whole. That time of self-examination needs to take place. That's what's happening right here. Psalmist is coming to the throne. He's bringing his sins before the Lord. And he's making things right. Have you ever like really felt, I mean, really felt your sinfulness before God? Like, just really felt it. Like, I'm so unworthy. I'm so unholy. I'm such a hypocrite. I struggle so much with my sin, God. I'm filthy. Have you ever felt like the psalmist? That, that's real. To see sin as God sees sin is so real and it's such a gift because a lot of people never see sin like God sees sin. He's seeing sin like God sees it. You know, it's like, uh, it's like Isaiah, right? Oh, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Those were our scriptures this week, right? Sunday, the pastor Ben shared. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he's like, he's, he's, he literally faints before the Lord. He's undone. He, he realizes how unholy he is and how holy God is. So that self-examination to really see myself as God sees me and to really see sin as God sees it and to be sorrowful for it is a gift. Because godly sorrow worketh repentance. And many, many never sorrow for their sin. Restitution and repentance go hand in hand to put things right with God. You know, a thief is not repented until he restores what he has stole. You know, 
it's easy for me to say, Lord, I'm sorry for stealing that $100 from Grandma when $100 still in my back pocket. All right? Seeing as God sees it and making restitution, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What a gift it is to be drawn to God with a repentant heart. So you see, sometimes suffering is a gift to help us to know God more. Sometimes it's a gift, right? To keep us from sin in the first place. Sometimes suffering is a gift that helps launch the gospel into our community. But Psalms 38 says sometimes suffering is the result of sin in our life. And it's God's way of disciplining us because He loves us and He's drawing us back into right relationship with Him. What a loving God that He would not leave us in the midst of our sin. And He sends us the Holy Spirit to do that. John 16 and verse 7 says this. And I'll just say this about the Holy Spirit. We get so excited about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the move of the Holy Spirit. And and we lose sight that one of the things or the main thing the Holy Spirit does is to reprove of sin in our lives. Let us know, Scott, that was wrong. You need to do something about that, son. That's what the Holy Spirit called alongside me mainly does. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. That helper, see, it's capitalized. It's the word paraclete. And it's capitalized because it's, it's God. The helper is God. God the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What a powerful psalm. What a powerful psalm. It's, it's, uh, it's a psalm about the problem of sin and the problem of suffering that it causes. It's about as real as it gets. And it's something that we all need to take heed to. Amen. Anybody want to share anything? Thoughts? Comments? Questions? Could, um, I do have a question. Mm-hmm. For James chapter 5, 13 through 15. Yeah. Um, I know for some it could be a little mind boggling. Um, you know, where it says that the call the elders of the church let them pray with one knowing was ordering them the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, uh, I guess it could be an extra thought to think like, well, wait, if, if he just prays the faith, then he will be raised. Some some people, I mean, have, it, it's, it's easy thought to come up reading the scripture. So could you explain that to us a little more exactly what he's saying here, that it's not just the faith that will raise him up, you know, of the, of the sick Oh, wow. Thank you. No, that's a very, very good question. Uh, I mean, I believe that God is a healer. 
And I believe that, that God is just as capable of healing now as He was at any time in history. Uh, I have laid hands on the sick and I have anointed with oil and I have prayed a prayer of faith over people and I felt instantly that they were healed and I've got testimony that they were healed. I have seen God's miraculous power in raising people up and healing people. I've also anointed oil, anointed people with oil and I prayed the same prayer of faith and believed the same way that I always do and they weren't healed. I don't understand it, but I know that God has an ultimate purpose and sometimes the ultimate healing is to be with Him. To be with Him. Uh, I mean, I was praying for someone so fervently one day alone in church at the altar. I was crying before God and it was a dear friend and, and church member and she was on the table in the ER or not in, in, in surgery, in Thibodeau General, and they had her chest open doing open-heart surgery, and they couldn't close it. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and everything was going wrong, and I was getting texts from her husband, pray, 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 and then God just like impressed on me, like, get up and start preparing the family to say goodbye. And so I... I I just, I just felt that in my spirit. and That's what I did. And she died. I don't know the answer to that, Manny. Uh, but I do believe that we do have authority as elders of the church that when someone is sick, they can call for the elders of the church and that they can come before the church. The elders can anoint with oil and pray a prayer of faith. And the Lord will raise them up. And if they have committed any sins, if there's any sins tied to that, then it says, then that's also a prayer of repentance at the same time, isn't it? And that the Lord will heal them. So sometimes it may be just a, a spiritual sickness, you know, not a physical sickness that needs to be dealt with. But, uh, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. I'll add to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. In 13 to 15, mm-hmm. it's a healing versus. But nowhere in that in those verbiage in that verbiage is say the healing will take place. Right. It's a command to the saints to do that work, lay the hands upon yeah. those who are suffering. So there could be a command of the person providing the laying on of hands. It may be in addition to a healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take the healing out, some people you'll hear testimonies where have been healed like you just mm-hmm. shared. Yeah. They're just testimonies when they're not. Right. That could be healing. That could be praying for uh, guidance in, in, in decision making. People all the time say, God doesn't hear my prayers. Well, He hears every one of them. Yeah. It's just not the desired answers all yeah. the time. Might not, be the, might not be the answer we want. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it this way, okay? Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out the tomb. I mean, he'd been dead for how long? Four days, right? Four days. And they, even they said, oh, Lord, he's going to stink by now. So he comes out. And I mean, I can imagine him like all wrapped in grave clothes. And they, they unwrap him. And so then I think about like Lazarus, like going beyond the grave and walking his days. But he died. Otherwise, he'd still be here. He died again. Okay, 
So it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. So death will come. Not, there, there won't always be a physical healing that, that will take place. I mean, we know this. I mean, it, I think just taking that out of context and saying, and then trying to put the, uh, the guilt on someone for not having enough faith is kind of ridiculous. I mean, the same faith that it takes to get saved is no different than the t- type of faith that it takes for anything else. So if there's not enough faith for anything else, then there's not enough faith to be saved. And all it takes to be saved is the grain of mustard seed. And that's a gift of God. It's not even of ourself. That faith is a gift given by Him. Now it can grow, and it grows through the Word of God and through, through prayer. Does that help? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. 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 What are your thoughts? Well, there, I don't believe that there is any perfect prayer that any man can walk up and from his bed, you know, and be raised and then perfect health after that. Yeah. Because we pray a prayer, they pray a prayer. That's it's, that's not biblical. Yeah. I, um, you know, I do see that it's a um, uh, instruction for the elders to pray. Obviously, we pray by the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. For um, for the sick person, you know, and Jesus Christ being an intercessor on our behalf for that, and then obviously, you know, it's like a it's like the double. Um, I guess there's like a double meaning here. You know, it's like yeah, it could be physical uh, healing, but most of all, like you said, your whole sermon was about we hope and all that it's a spiritual healing yeah. because that is eternal life. Yeah. So I I just I, yeah. you know just for just for learning purposes and for us to grow yeah. where I was I asked that question, yeah. but. Yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely agree with you, you too, Mr. Lester. So I think like going to, uh, like to, to Job, Job said something that I think just kind of is so profound to me and I think really embodies what faith is. And he said this to the Lord. He said, though he slay me, I will trust him. And so I think that's a, a prayer of faith. God, here I am. Do what you may. Do what you will. That's, that's an ultimate prayer of faith. It's the prayer that Jesus lifted up and he, you know, it's a prayer of faith. Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. That is an ultimate prayer of faith. Whatever you want here, it's a, it's a trust. Like whatever happens, happens, I'm trusting God. You know, it doesn't matter what the doctors say. I'm in God's hands. If I die... It doesn't happen apart from God's knowledge and God's sovereign plan. That's true Scott, faith. You, yeah. you, just re, you just referred to if this cup can pass before me, mm-hmm. and that was reference to the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus. Uh, you could have easily taken the mid part of Psalms 38 mm. and be describing Jesus on the cross. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And, no, and that's why he called himself the son of David. <laughs> You know, because all of these psalms are messianic in nature. So, great point, great point. There's a lot of messianic crossovers in these books. Awesome, great point. That's some deep theology right there, guys. <laughs> Anybody else? Good, good, good Bible discussion, amen? I, <laughs> I have a lot of questions. I can't wait to get to heaven. <laughs> I'm not going to question him. I'm just going to find somebody that knows. <laughs> I'm going to be like, hey, uh, 
Maybe I could talk to uh, Spurgeon or somebody like that, you know? <laughs> That's been there a while. I don't know. Amen. All right. Y'all ready? God, we thank you for your word. It's so good and it's so pure and it's, it's so encouraging to, uh, to know that we're not alone in our struggles. That when we open the words of men like David, we can see that his struggles are our struggles. And it's, it's encouraging, God, that you would say of a man like that, that he was a man after your own heart when he's so close to who we are. I pray, God, that you would help us to, uh, to, to examine suffering in our life and, and to know what you're teaching us and to know if you're disciplining us and to know if it's to a greater purpose. I pray that pride would not enter in. I pray that we would walk in humility and pureness before you. I pray that the rest of this week you would open up uh, the doors of opportunity for us to share our faith and to tell somebody about Jesus. Save people, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.